good. I was there from age four to age 18 and went to school at a boarding school. We had the opportunity of going back to Vietnam uh, to visit when we lived in Malaysia years later. My wife and me and two of our three children were visiting in uh, mainly Saigon, Dalat. We went to Bon Mituit. Uh, the places that I had lived and uh, that we'd I had experienced as a child. And it was great to be able to introduce Sharon to those places. And my kids don't remember, but it was fun to see them in that setting as well. Uh, then I left Sharon and I went up. Did you go with me up to Da Nang and Quang Ai? Uh, I went, I flew up to Da Nang and uh, had the opportunity of riding a, f a helicopter. This was during the opening years of the war, uh, riding a helicopter, a military U.S. helicopter, over from Da Nang. You don't know these places, I don't think. But anyway, Da Nang over to uh, Guangai, where we had missionaries, both of those places. And the interesting thing was that when we took off, we went straight up like this. up to whatever height it was. Things got small on the ground, so it was high. And then we went across, and we came down like this, down into Guangai. And the reason was all the land between was held by the Viet Cong. And uh, if you flew low, they would shoot at you. And in deference to me, uh, they decided to fly high, and I appreciated it. Uh, but when we got to Guangai, I sat with some elders and uh, a pastor, a uh, Vietnamese church, and they were telling me what had happened not too long before. What happened was they were in a prayer meeting, and uh, the pastor was leading them in prayer. Suddenly, there was an attack from outside the, uh, the town of Guangai, and uh, a bullet came through the window and went in one temple and out the other temple of the pastor. Pow! Right through. Exploding his head. And the elders jumped from their seats, went over to their pastor, put their hands on him, one of them a hand on each side of his head, and began to pray. They said something like this. I, don't re I didn't record it or anything, but they said something like this as I tried to understand the Vietnamese. They said, we prayed and we prayed and we said, God, we don't know enough for our pastor to leave us now. We need him to teach us so that we can be strong in God so that we can learn how to truly believe and live out our faith for God. And they pled with God hour after hour. Finally, the hands came off, his head came up, and the pastor lived. Talk about belief. When you see a miracle, there's something that happens inside of you that makes you say, okay, God, <laughs> I know you're there. I believe what you say. I believe you can do the impossible. And so 
I live my life out of that belief. That's where we're going tonight. I want to talk about this issue of belief and how it affects us. Does anybody recognize what this is? A map of Israel, okay. So I didn't do too badly. I'm a little uncomfortable with the Sea of Galilee up there. It's supposed to be a little bit narrower on the bottom and a little bit broader, but like a heart-shaped. Anyway, does anybody know what the numbers 33 represent? None of you are that old, so it can't be that. Uh, 33 represents the number of miles to go clear around the lake or the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake. In fact, this lake is surrounded by mountains, and that's why storms kicked up so rapidly and unexpectedly. Winds would generally come from the, which way is this, west, like it does here in the States, uh, come from the west, sweep over these mountains, and it was like blowing in a cup, you know, over the, over the lid of a cup, how it stirs up the water like crazy. And that's what would happen in the lake or in the sea. So the, the wind would come in and uh, come down over that mountain and whip up this lake almost instantaneously and dramatically. And that's what was the problem on several occasions as we read the story. Uh, The number 13, you can guess this one. It's how long the lake is. 13 miles, that's all. 13 miles long. And the number 8 is... uh, It's also the distance from the lake over to Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. About 8 miles. So these, these places aren't far apart Uh, They seemed far apart because mostly they walked everywhere they went, so it took a long time. But in reality, this was close proximity. Up here is Galilee. Here is Samaria, right in this area. And uh, down here is Judah with Jerusalem, right about here. Right about here. So those are key places as uh, the story unfolds. Actually, this whole story, this whole account in these, uh, these chapters of Mark happen right up in this area, uh, right around the lake, right around the Sea of Galilee. I'd like to catch us up for just uh, a little bit on uh, two Sundays ago. It's been a while. Uh, today, we're actually studying chapter 6 of Mark, But first, I'd like to help us uh, by going back to the end of chapter 4. You'll find it on page 931 in the Bible, in the blue Bible on the table there. Page 931. Mark 4, and the end of that chapter, verse 32 and forward, it's right after Mark records how Jesus taught through a series of parables. Okay, if you look back earlier in 4, also in 3, you see some parables, some stories that Jesus used to to present his thought. Uh, And then, now, we see him performing a series of miracles from this point on, from 4.32 and forward through what we're going to talk about today. 
By the way, somebody has suggested that Jesus' parables are miracles in word. And that his miracles are parables in action. Miracles in word, parables in action. The implication is that parables and miracles both have the same purpose. They're for the purpose of teaching. They're for the, for the purpose of demonstrating the wonder of Jesus and the power of God. Mark's purpose is to demonstrate the message and power of the gospel with Jesus' death and resurrection as, as the uh, central focus yet coming. So Mark, when he's writing, all of this has already happened. So he already knows Jesus is going to die, and he's going to rise again, and he's going to go back to heaven. So while he's writing, he has all of that in mind. So if you, if you, if you realize that, it helps you understand uh, the implication of what he's saying and the stories that he tells, uh, the miracles and the parables that he describes uh, in, in his book. I don't know why I'm already running out of voice. <clears throat> Too much yelling. So I want to remind us that, that this book, <clears throat> this book that Mark wrote is not just the story of Jesus. It's not just the biography of Jesus. What it is, and he introduces it in the very opening lines of his book, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. So what he's saying is the stories, the parables, all of this that's going on, it's all about the one who is the good news because it culminates in the reality of his provision of life for all of us. So, Jesus is the good news. Uh, so, back to his activity starting in 435, the first thing we notice is that he and his disciples are um, in the seaside town of Capernaum. Mark doesn't actually tell us that, but Matthew does in the parallel passage. By the way, this, uh, no, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they, were, uh, they were just about to go. Jesus said, let's go across to the other side. Now, actually, they weren't going to the other side as we would think the other side to be. We would think if they were in Capernaum, which is right about there, the other side would be down here. Or if they were over here, the other side would be here. Actually, where they were going was right about here. So to us... That wouldn't necessarily be the other side. It's just two, three miles away by boat, so it took a little while. But uh, just only a little corner of the lake. And uh, the reality is, for the disciples, it really was the other side. Because this was the Gentile side, the scary side, the side where the enemy lived their terms, the side where it was dangerous, it was unclean, they couldn't eat food there. And so it was, it was definitely the other side for the disciples. And so they began to move 
on the boat across, and uh, that's when the huge wind coming over the mountain swept in and kicked up the water to such an extent, four of these guys were, were, uh, were, were fishermen, they'd spent their life on the lake, on the sea, and yet they were petrified that they were gonna sink. The boat was already being washed with water, and they were afraid that the boat was gonna go down. So this was a huge storm. And um, Jesus spoke to the wind, the threatening force of nature, the natural realm in full attack, and immediately the storm, the wind calmed. So they get to the other side, the country of Gerasenes, and immediately they're confronted with another kind of wind, a spirit wind. In fact, the word for wind and the word for spirit is the same in the language that they spoke. Roich, in the Greek, in fact, if they were talking Greek, since it was in, their, in, the, in the Gentile region, it was pneuma, and that's both wind and spirit. So they had just dealt with wind on the ocean or on the sea, and now they're dealing with wind in the village. And again, Jesus speaks, and the wind, the evil spirit wind, the threatening forces of the spirit realm, they're immediately calmed. And then the demons are sent into the herd of pigs over the hillside. This is important. Thomas didn't have a chance, uh, time enough to go into this, but uh, let me just spend a moment here. Actually, a few, few questions come to mind as I think about this. First of all, do you honestly think it was a surprise to Jesus that the legion of two to 5,000 demons asked to be cast into the pigs? Do you think Jesus was surprised? We already see him reading minds of the Pharisees, reading the minds of his disciples. Certainly he knew this was coming. In fact, I would contend that this was Jesus' plan all along. I believe that he made them ask so that everyone would hear and understand the plan, and ultimately, the demons would be blamed and no one else. So when they lost their pigs, it would be the demons that would be to blame. They're the ones that requested being sent to the pigs. Second question, why so many pigs in this herd? 2,000 pigs, it says. Well, that's a lot of pigs, right? Where are you? Uh, oh, over there. <laughs> uh, our pig raisers, our resident pig raisers. Uh, that's not children, that's actually pigs. Uh, the, uh, so 2,000 pigs, that's because the whole community, none of them kept their pigs in the backyard. Who would? No, they hired herdsmen to take care of their pigs. So this was a collection of pigs from throughout the region, all being cared for, tended by the herdsmen. That word is actually used. Why did Jesus send them there? Well, I think there were four reasons. First of all, to prove to the man that he was truly free. 
He could see what demons do. And he could see what they were doing to him. And now he could see what they did to the pigs. They were killing him. And now they killed them. Secondly, to prove to the disciples and to the people of Gerasa that the man's problem really was demonic and that this man really was cleansed and he was ready to return to community. Don't you think they would have been hesitant if the demons just kind of disappeared to nothing? Sure they would have been. He'd been this way for years. He was destructive. And so knowing that they were gone, truly gone, they would receive him back into community. And then it would take the blame away from the man, I already mentioned that, so he could go home and live without reprisal for the loss of the pigs. And fourth, to show that demons are committed to kill and destroy every time. Demons are committed to kill and destroy, whether it's people or pigs, and as far as they're concerned, they're both the same. Doesn't matter. People are pigs. They're just out to destroy and to kill. So the fact is, this was an act of love and an act of compassion for the whole community, and particularly for the man that had been tormented by those demons over his lifetime. Well, then they returned to Capernaum, where Jesus heals the woman who had the issue of blood and brings Jairus' daughter back to life. Both miracles show his power over sickness and the ultimate sickness of death. So again, that which is the plight of mankind, whether it comes from nature, whether it comes from demonic forces, spiritual, or whether it comes from physical, sickness and death, Jesus was demonstrating the wonderful power of God to intervene on behalf of those within that community. And now we come to chapter 6, finally. And we see the uh, we see the clear demonstration of his authority uh, that was uh, that was actually rejected by those that he related to uh, the the demonstrations the the teachings and the miracles were actually rejected by those that he related to, and I'll show you what I mean. First, look at the unbelief among his family and neighbors back in the hometown of Nazareth that I pointed to a few minutes ago. Just eight miles west, but it wasn't an easy road because it was up that mountain that I talked about that surrounds uh, the Sea of Galilee, up over the mountain and uh, over to Nazareth. Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, or take out the negatives because it's a double negative. A prophet has honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own uh, household. And he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their what? Unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. 
Thomas actually covered this particular passage last week, so I won't go over it again. Just notice that his acquaintances didn't believe him and instead rejected him and his teaching and even his miracles, rejected him. And so Mark tells us he left there and went about among the villages teaching. So he left Nazareth, went to some of the other villages in the region, and continued his teaching. Secondly, we'll skip over verses 7 to 13 for just a few minutes, and notice verses 14 to 16. Look at the unbelief among his enemies, one particular one, but others as well that were on that side. Verses 14 to 16, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known in the region. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old, which includes Elijah. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Then Mark goes back and tells the whole story of how and why Herod killed John the Baptist. I'll let you read through that on your own time. We're not going to cover that because that's not the point of my message. My point is this. His enemies didn't believe him and simply explained him away. They, explained, they renamed him and explained him away so they wouldn't have to deal with him. It's like they said, we'll change his name so that we don't have to hear from him. We don't have to believe in him. It's, it's, for them, it's more logical to think of the miracle that John or one of the Old Testament prophets came back to life and is now living among them. That's easier for them to believe than the fact that Jesus was coming as Messiah. Third, notice the unbelief among his friends, even his own disciples. Really, the next two events bear this out. First event is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only one of the miracles that Jesus did that's recorded in all four Gospels. All four Gospels cover this miracle. That's how significant, that's how impactful it was to those disciples and to the community. This isn't an estimate or an approximation of 5,000 men because it tells us that Jesus said to line them up. It's actually like you do in a garden where you're planting. The word is used here that uh, is used in planting a garden where you plant it in rows so you can keep the, the, the weeds out of the rows. And so they, they actually lined the people up in rows of 50s and 100s men on this side, women over here, same line, same procedure, so they knew exactly how many were there. And he fed 5,000 plus women and children. Some have estimated as many as 12,000 people that day. 
and he fed them with five loaves. That's the word for loaves isn't the flat bread big thing, and it doesn't matter. Five thousand people couldn't eat on that either. But this was a little lunch roll that would be in your lunch bag when you're going out for a picnic. So this is a little lunch roll, like a biscuit, and two fish, and that word represents sardine-sized fish, not a whale, you know, or bigger, uh, but a sardine-sized fish. The point is, the point is, Jesus fed those 12,000, give or take, people with five biscuits and two sardines by blessing it and starting to break and the disciples handed it over, handed it over, and they came back with 12 baskets full. No reason to know, no reason to believe that it wasn't so that each disciple had lunch as they ate. And this wasn't a big basket. This was a little lunch basket, probably that big around and about that high. So uh, it was 12 baskets full of that bread and fish. Probably happened in Beth Bethesda area, just over here east, doesn't matter, I don't know where the, right over here east of Capernaum, and uh, up in the mountainside nearby the, the river or the lake, uh, both, and uh, that's where he fed. The second event mentioned in three of the Gospels, three of the four Gospels, happened between 3 and uh, 6 a.m. the next morning while the disciples were trying to boat over to Gennesaret. Gennesaret now is on the other side. It's actually over here. So they crossed from there to there, going against the wind, by the way. And... Uh, We read in uh, verses 45 to 51. I would like to take the time to read that. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Immediately. Mark uses that word immediately a number of times through his passage, but here it was immediate because John tells us, the parallel passage in the book of John tells us that they were about to take Jesus by force and make him king after he fed them all. So this was exciting stuff. And Jesus got the disciples out of the way so that they wouldn't be impacted by this movement to make him king. It wasn't Jesus' time, and it wasn't the right kind of kingship. And so he put them on the boat, shoved them offshore, and away they went to Bethesda, uh, which he, uh, Bethesda, well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making, making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them by. A better translation of that is actually, he meant to come alongside them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. It's interesting to me that Peter's brief water-walking incident isn't even mentioned here. And Peter's the source of the story. Remember, we talked about that early on, about this Mark uh, book. Uh, Mark wasn't present when all of this was happening. He came later. And so he got most of his information from Peter. So either Peter or maybe Mark didn't think the fact that Peter had walked on water was even worth mentioning. See, this is all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel of Jesus. And I think they just realized that this was just getting in the way. Let's not talk about Peter's experience. But then look at the end of verse 51. And we'll read through 52. They got into the boat. uh, He got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So his closest friends, hard hearts, his closest friends, his disciples, didn't believe in him, but continued to rely on their own understanding. They didn't understand what was going on. They continue to rely on their own resources, even though Jesus is the one that provided lunch for everybody. They're still depending on themselves. Here's my question. Do you believe in Jesus? Now, before you answer, let me ask it again. Do you believe in Jesus? That is, do you stake your life on who Jesus is and what he has done in your life to transform you, to bring you from death into life? Do you really believe in him in a life-changing way? We saw that change come to the disciples later on, but not here. His family and neighbors didn't. Those who were most familiar with with him, and yet whose minds are clouded by familiarity. Oh, this is Jesus. I know his brothers and sisters. I watched him grow up. I know he's just the son of a carpenter. Actually, Mark records that they said, isn't he the carpenter? Uh, Isn't he the son of Mary? Uh, and uh, that in itself was, was uh, horrible to say in that culture uh, because he wasn't identifying the father. They still believed that Mary had had Jesus out of wedlock. So all of this was clouding their way of thinking. They were most familiar with him, but they rejected him. Listen, some of us have grown up in Christian homes, 
Some of us have grown up going to church all our lives. He's familiar to us. We know all the stories. We've prayed from childhood at bedtime. We've prayed over dinner and lunch and, and, and breakfast. We've, we've said all of those prayers. He's familiar to us. But sometimes that works against us. We take him for granted. Or maybe your parents weren't wholly sold out to God. And as a result, you wonder if he really does make a difference. And so you flounder with this idea of having a personal relationship with him. My question is, has there been a time when you've said, okay, Jesus, I, I believe you in a life-changing way. I accept what you did on the cross of, Christ, of Calvary, and I accept that as my payment for sin, and I believe in you. I stake my life on you. Nothing else. I stake my life on you. Do you believe in him? His enemies didn't. Those who had set their hearts against him and tried to explain him away. There's a lot of people in our culture that try to explain Jesus away. Try to explain God away. Try to ignore God altogether in their life. There are those all around us. Or they, make, they remake God into something that is convenient for them, which is not God at all. They call Jesus a really good man, but they don't believe in him and refuse to do so. I wonder if you're in that camp. Third, his friends, those who heard his message, saw his miracles, but were confused and hardened by their own agenda, by their own presuppositions. I wonder if there are those of us who really are among those who've committed their life to Jesus, but it's gotten old, and your level of belief isn't keen and life-changing. Do you still believe in him? Those are the questions that we need to answer And we need to come into full commitment to this belief system that changes our life in a culture that's rapidly, rapidly moving away from biblical principles. Let, let me just, uh, yeah, let me just pray briefly, and then I want to get back to that passage that we skipped. Father in heaven, uh, here we are. We have, we have put this time slot aside that we might meet with people of like mind and interest. We're here today because there's something that drew us together. Maybe it's fellowship. Maybe it's other friends come, so we come. Maybe we come because we're really committed to this. Whatever the purpose, whatever the reason, Lord, I pray that you will speak into our hearts and check our level of belief in you. Is it life-changing, or are we playing games? 
Is it life-changing, or are we still hesitant to make a full commitment? Lord, I pray that you would put within us a hunger for you that will respond to your invitation. And we will come to you as Savior and as Lord. We want to declare here today, we believe in you. And we commit. We don't just hope so. We don't just want to. We commit to allowing that belief to change us. That you might be glorified in our lives. That we might be light to a dark world. That we might be salt to a decaying society. Lord, make us new in the level of our belief. This afternoon we pray. Amen. In closing, go back to 7 through 13 of, of chapter 6. 7 through 13. What I'd like to do for about uh, five minutes is have you read that passage right there at your table. Read chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And talk about how this applies to us as we will, just in a few minutes, pack up and go into the Lexington community for another week of mundane activity, of work, of school, whatever it might mean. How will this, how does this affect you and me as we go out of this place as true believers in Jesus, okay? Uh, take a few minutes, read the passage, read it out loud. Someone can read it. It's a short passage. And then talk about how the different aspects of that passage relate to us. Practical application. How does it relate to us? Go. So how many, how many tables got the two-by-two two thing? Anybody reflect on the two-by-two two idea? Come on, over here. Yeah, several of the tables. This is, this, is a key, this is a key revelation. Jesus sent them out two-by-two. Two. He sent them out in community. He sent them out in accountability. He sent them out with mutual support. The Bible says two are better than one. And it's important that you, as you go, stay in relationship, stay in community with somebody. By phone, somehow, stay in community throughout the week so that if you're tempted, call somebody. Call that accountability partner and, uh, and just have prayer together. You can say, look, I'm struggling. You know this is a weakness that I have, and I'm struggling. I've got an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, and, and I don't know if I'm really equipped. Pray with me. And so two by two, it's, it's really key that you not be a Lone Ranger. Even a Lone Ranger had Tonto. Uh, so you don't know about that, do you? You, you forgot about that. <laughs> but the issue, the, the thing is, 
we've got to be in community. We've got to stay in community, even while we're separate. And as we go, we go certainly with God in our lives, certainly empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we go knowing that we're backed up by a community and be willing to stay in that relationship. So important. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. That's important. Did anybody pick up on the idea of being unencumbered with stuff? Yeah, I see a lot of nods. See a lot of nods. Unencumbered with stuff. You know, this, this is another thing. If, if you're encumbered with responsibilities that God hasn't specifically given you, then it's hard to get away. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying this because I almost didn't say it because I know a lot of you guys have dogs. <laughs> and that's great. I know that's a, that's a comfort. <laughs> and some of those dogs are really important. But listen, I love dogs. I had a Doberman pincer when I was just a little kid in Vietnam. Uh, his name was Jet, but his real name, he had papers, Oxton, Oxtonburg Oaks was his real name. Uh, and, uh, so, and, I, and all the way through childhood, we had a dog. And even, how many dogs have we had since we were married? <laughs> a bunch. But right now, in spite of the fact that I would love a dog, I know that it would get in my way when we go to travel, when we go to the kids, when I go down to moms, when I, uh, when I am, am out of the house for any length of time. And so it's an encumbrance that we have chosen to set aside for now so that we can be available at a moment's notice. Lock the door, leave it all with you guys. Uh, and, uh, and, just, and just, yeah, zero, zero. <laughs> Uh, leave it all with zero and just uh, and just go. Uh, yeah, unencumbrance. Uh, so so they took the bare necessities, and there's something good about that. There's something freeing about that. Don't get too encumbered with the things of this world, so that you're not able to move when God says move. Go where God says to go. Do what God says to do. How many uh, got the idea of, uh, of not being affected by, uh, by uh, what's the word, I've lost it, rejection? Anybody get that? It's, uh, yeah, we've got several. Uh, the idea of dusting the dust off of your shoes and moving on somewhere else if somebody doesn't want you to stay there, uh, that's actually a cultural thing. It's a, it's a physical expression of just laying it all behind, leaving it behind, not being affected by it. Listen, one of the things that hinders us in being a witness for Jesus is fear of rejection. Isn't it true? We don't want to say anything because we're afraid they're going to reject us, and then what are we going to do? Maybe we'll take it personally. Or maybe we'll close the door to have a further conversation. Whatever the reason, we kind of hold back because of a fear of rejection. Listen, there are so many out there that are willing to hear you, hear your story, hear the difference God makes in your life, that if you're rejected, 
They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the gospel of who Jesus is. So go to somebody else. Continue on. Press on, as the disciples were called to do. Don't be impacted. Don't be discouraged. How about uh, the message that they were called to give and the message they gave? Anybody pick up on that as a part of this? If it was a message of repentance, it's not a comfortable message nowadays. We don't like the idea of repentance. We like the idea of asking forgiveness. We can say, Jesus, please forgive me for that. Please uh, wash my sins away. Uh, and then uh, going on until the next time. That's not repentance. This is a call to repentance. That is turning away and going the opposite direction and not allowing that to be controlling our lives anymore. They were preaching not the, not the message of asking for forgiveness. They were preaching the message of repentance, a life change, because that's the only thing that makes true belief, makes true believers. And finally, he sent them under whose power? Anybody pick up that? Uh, Jesus' power, he made it very clear that he was sending them out. He was sending them to do the very things that he had been doing. And so it was in his power that they went forward, and it was on his behalf that they proclaimed and actually healed people and relieved people from uh, demonic oppression. In fact, what they were supposed to do was go where Jesus sent them and do what Jesus would do if he himself was going there. And that's our call. That's our call. As we go into Lexington or Wilmore or wherever we go from here on from here, as we go into our week, Jesus is sending you, sending me, to be what he would be if he was going there. Because you know what? He is. He is in you. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And so he goes with us into our week. Lord, as we go, May we represent you well. May we not be afraid of rejection. Lord, may we not be hindered by too much obligation. Lord, send us forth in community that we might support one another throughout this week in little ways and big ways, in our community groups, in one-on-one -on -one conversations on the phone or face-to-face -face coffee. Lord, whatever it might be, may we remain in that sense of community that we might encourage one another and go forward in strength, your strength, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.